listeners, welcome to another episode of the Arcananth Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. The goal of the Arcananth Podcast is to share information with online audiences about people, heritage studies, material culture, museum work, and much, much more. On today's episode, it is awesome to be speaking with Professor Aaron Thompson. Aaron, are you there? I am. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. So cool to chat with you today. Uh, I'm thrilled. And it's great to be here, especially in a time where we're seeing a an upswing in museum thefts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I saw in the news recently uh, here in the Netherlands where I live, um, just sort of uh, 20 miles away from Amsterdam, there was a small museum where uh, Van Gogh was taken. Yeah, and uh, there have been a few other small museums that have been hit during the lockdown for the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Is that um, happening also like in, in America? I have not seen that in America, but you know, you can't really trust the news. Well, that sounds like a parent thing to say, but <laughs> uh, muse- museums are often very reluctant to report mm. um, crimes uh, committed in Museums are often reluctant to report thefts Mm -hmm. uh, because they worry that donors won't trust them with their art. Mm -hmm. But ironically, reporting it is really the only way to get the art back is to make a big deal about, Mm -hmm. hey, if you see this painting, you need to contact whatever museum. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, And let's dive right into everything then. First question, like on your website and your Twitter account, you are, um, you know, dubbed as art crime prof and... I suppose people can maybe hazard a guess as to what exactly it is you care about in your day-to-day work. Well, actually, every time I say that that's what I teach, people say, what? What is that? What do you mean by (laughs) art crime professor? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do a mix of things. So I originally got into being interested in the intersection between law and crime and antiquities in graduate school. Mm -hmm. I was working for my dissertation on ancient Greek painted vases. And there's a group of them that had imagery that was so strange that some scholars just said, well, these must be fake because they can't possibly be ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about basically to try and save my dissertation. You know, these are big, I didn't want to rewrite the whole thing. Uh, So I thought, how how do you know if if an antiquity is genuine or not? Mm -hmm. And realized that what I had assumed was true was really not true, that there are so many fallibilities in the scientific testing Mm -hmm. um, that unless you know that something came from a documented archaeological excavation, it's very difficult to know if it's a genuine antiquity or not. Mm -hmm. So then I started thinking, well, where are all these other antiquities coming from that are just on the marketplace? um, End up in a museum with no source information Mm -hmm. and that I feel like I'm saying this in a very naive tone, like where could they have possibly come from? But really, I had no idea. That wasn't something I learned about in my classes. Mm -hmm. So I started to look into the world of uh, illegal excavations and looting that Mm -hmm. lead to a lot of antiquities on the marketplace today or even in museums today. Um, Various thefts, the history of, of takings either cooperatively or Uh, not so cooperatively in the past Mm -hmm. um, and got more and more fascinated and ended up going to law school in addition to finishing up my PhD, Mm -hmm. uh, in part also because I thought it would be difficult to get a job as an art historian. No, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Such a strange thought I had. Uh, So I worked as a lawyer lawyer for a couple of years uh, and then gladly 
retreated back into the ivory tower with his position on art law and art crime. Mm -hmm. And so my primary field of focus when I started my academic career was the looting and smuggling of antiquities with an interest in uh, forgery of art in general. And then I developed what I thought was just sort of an an academic historical interest in the deliberate destruction of art. Mm -hmm. And then that became something that happened in the world a lot with the uh, Islamic State destroying various uh, cultural sites Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years in Syria and Iraq. So I've been um, doing more thinking about... um, the potential to punish those who have uh, illegally destroyed cultural property, the sort of strategy of the deliberate destruction of cultural property as a technique of war, Mm -hmm. uh, and then more broadly, the right to destroy. Um, Is it that destruction of cultural property is always bad, or do sometimes people have a right to uh, disassociate themselves with a belief that they no longer hold? Hmm. And hmm. Uh, I also started thinking about the right to preserve, the right to interpret. Uh, so I've been writing a lot about um, making digital reconstructions of mm-hmm. destroyed cultural sites um, and whether it's okay that most of these very labor-intensive, very expensive, uh, resource-intensive co- uh, reconstructions of cultural sites are made by tech people in first world countries without a whole lot of input, if any input, from people in the, the areas in which these sites were constructed. Right. So yeah, so I get to uh, think about a whole variety of things that aren't necessarily um, the Thomas Crown Affair mm-hmm. or museum heists, but it's always fun to talk about museum yeah. heists. And currently based in New York? Yes, so I'm a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which mm-hmm. is part of the City University of New York. Yeah, and has this coronavirus situation affected you and, and your work and where you get to do work? Are you Is working from home a big change for you, let's say? Well, actually this semester uh, I wasn't teaching because I just started a position as the director of the Center for Gender Justice mm-hmm. at John Jay. So I've transitioned all of our events to be live stream events, which is a skill that I did not think I would have in graduate school. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, um, uh, back in your university days, was there a plethora of options for you? Like, did you have to learn some things from, from this module and combine them with another class to get the education that you wanted, talk to this professor, or did you have to wait until after you were done with your education to get more, let's say like specialized training on the job after your formative education? Art crime is such a narrow field that there are very few courses offered in it. Mm -hmm. So essentially I learned the most about it. The first biggest chunk when I applied to teach a summer class about it, um, just after I'd gotten my master's Mm -hmm. and I taught myself in order to teach this class, apologies retroactively to the the students who put up with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's been a power to realize there's nobody who's shaping the field for me. Right. Um, I mean, there are plenty of people I, I respect, but there's no, well, this is the ABNC you must do to be an expert in art crime. Right. Um, so it feels very freeing. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of 
there's a lot more resources that I can direct people to now who are interested in art crime. There are some really awesome MOOCs and books for general audiences, and some are beach read thriller like, and some are more in the the criminological science of it. But mm-hmm. uh, if anybody wants to tweet at me, I can um, give you some reading and listening recommendations. Cool. So like in your experiences and conversations with people, how many people would you say are dedicating their lives to looking at the problem of art crime in the US? Like, are we talking about like uh, dozens or uh, hundreds maybe across the country? Well, there are hundreds of people in the US, I would say, who are extremely interested in the problem of art crime and do a lot for it. Mm -hmm. But since there are so few jobs where that's your sole responsibility, mm-hmm. I would say there's maybe less than a dozen people who can do that full time. Um, so, oh, for example, there are lawyers who do cases seeking the return of Nazi looted art mm-hmm. um, to the families of victims, but that's only a case or two a year versus their, their other um, caseload. Or even if you work in museum security, You're also concerned with making sure nobody embezzles from the gift shop or Mm. um, that pickpockets aren't going around the museum in addition to how do you secure the Rembrandt? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the uh, lawyer in even in my own house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My partner is uh, an international lawyer, um, so he would know a lot more about this. But, you know, I I know that destroying art um, deliberately could be uh, a crime in some cases and you can be criminally charged for uh, let's say foraging and antiquity. Like you sent me uh, a great video, <laughs> which I'll link to on our website, which shows you talking about how there was even a case where an ancient Egyptian uh, mummified penis was faked, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, who how buys many, that? Who buys that? Yeah, I don't know. Who makes that even? Um, <laughs> how many actions and behaviors would fall under the umbrella of art crime? Well, it's so interesting to me because things that you assume would be completely illegal often are not. So, for example, forging an antiquity in very, very few jurisdictions, in very few countries, Mm. is an illegal act all by itself. Because for many reasons, including uh, copying art is a time-honored way of learning how to be an artist. That's why you go into a museum and you see people with their drawing pads, drawing masterpieces, they're not making forgeries to fool somebody. They're being art students. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets a little trickier when you realize, oh, very few people are prosecuted for selling forgeries uh, either because the prosecutors have to prove that they had the mindset, the criminal mindset, that they knew that something was a forgery and was selling it as something genuine. Mm. Um, so all you have to do is not keep any evidence around, you know, don't write any notes to self. Right. This, uh, is a fake Picasso that I'm just selling Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, but it's a really low bar. So for example, a few years ago, a gallery in the upper East side of Manhattan, a very ritzy district, this very long, well, um, a gallery that had been around for many, many, many decades. Uh, sold a series of fake modern paintings mm-hmm. and escaped any criminal prosecution. The gallery employees were never charged with any criminal acts, even though, for example, one of the paintings that they sold was a Jackson Pollock. Somebody paid $1.2 million mm. 
for this Jackson Pollock in which, in the signature, Pollock was spelled wrong. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you think they should have probably known that something was not right, but somehow Mm. nobody ever noticed it. Um, A lot of things you'd think of as that should be crimes in the art world are not criminal. Um, And then other things that are crimes, are criminal, are not often prosecuted. So the deliberate destruction of criminal property is a technique of war Mm -hmm. for many decades has been um, outlawed in international law, in domestic codes. Uh, But only a few years ago did we have our first prosecution for the deliberate destruction of cultural property in the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, A um, man in Mali who uh, supervised the destruction of ancient shrines in the city of Timbuktu. And it's because there are so many other horrible things that happened during war mm-hmm. uh, that people tend to think, well, this, this is technically wrong, all this destruction of art, but it's not worth uh, our resources to prosecute it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just about to ask you, actually, whether you had uh, worked with or you have uh, written about UNESCO or other peacekeeping institutions and operations. Yeah, like the ICC is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. What is the experience like of uh, looking at these issues in, in other parts of the world and how do they sort of compare in the U.S.? Uh, are there you know particular complications when it comes to these matters when they start to be uh, internationally relevant? Yes. Uh, because the field of protection of cultural property is somewhere where you see a lot of colonialist attitudes towards who should own art creep in. Mm-hmm. Um, so various American uh, cultural property leaders love to, whenever any cultural site is threatened in the rest of the world, say, well, see, this is what you get when you allow culture, cultural items to stay in someplace dangerous where they aren't really appreciated. So mm-hmm. we should have, you know, for example, there's been calls for let's move everything from the National Museum in Baghdad to America until Iraq is safe again. Uh, so very paternalistic attitudes, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um And uh, something that I try and do is not just point this out when it's obvious, um, like when somebody writes an op-ed in the New York Times advocating that, uh, but when it's not so obvious. So one of my recent pieces was about how there have been hundreds of seizures of antiquities looted from Syria during the the ongoing conflict there um, in many countries across the world. But... Only a very few countries, uh, three uh, and then two countries, have repatriated objects to Syria, mm-hmm. uh, essentially because nobody wants to deal with the Assad regime, um, the, the regime in power with its human rights abuses. But that refusal to repatriate objects to Syria means that everyone's just breaking the international law about repatriation. Um, with no clear plan for, well, when is it okay to give something mm-hmm. back to a country? What have you written about the ISIS destruction of archaeological sites in uh, Palmyra, for example, in Syria? So the Islamic State made destruction of cultural property a part of their strategy of war. Mm-hmm. And 
I've been arguing that we need to prosecute the destruction of cultural property more seriously because ISIS has shown just how good of a technique of war it is. Because think about it, if you roll into a town and mm-hmm. you have to fight house by house to defeat or um, if you have to roll into a town and fight house by house to defeat all of the residents of that town, that's going to be very costly and time-taking. But instead what mm-hmm. ISIS would do is roll into a town, destroy whatever cultural monument that town was most proud of, be it a shrine or a church, um, a monastery, an archaeological site, and then people would get the message real quick, you're next, right. um, and flee. So part of the huge wave of refugees from Syria is because of this technique of the destruction of cultural property. Mm-hmm. So many Americans reacted to ISIS's destruction of Palmyra or other archaeological sites as, oh, this is a blow against the cultural history of humanity as a whole, and didn't realize this is also a blow against the economy of Syria and especially of that particular town, Tenmer, the modern city near Palmyra, which uh, relied upon the site as a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be much harder for that city to recover with the destruction uh, there. So I think art crime tends to get thought of as something frivolous or or funny or uh, Hollywood-esque, but art is important to people uh, psychologically, culturally, and also economically. Art is important to people, not just for their their hearts and their minds, but also their bank accounts and their societies. And that's why I'm interested in it, not just to preserve cultural monuments so that first world people can look at them in museums and have aesthetic raptures, but Mm -hmm. so that art can be used in the different ways by different peoples that Mm -hmm. uh, it is. When that was happening at the time, on the very day, do you remember how you felt and and what you were thinking on the day that these things happened and how you reacted personally? Uh, I actually wrote uh, my first personal essay um, about the destruction at Palmyra. Uh, I've been since then, really trying to think about the relationship between my, my personal life and my field of study. And hmm. um, the destruction of Palmyra affected me because it was one of the first sites that I had come across as an undergraduate, as a freshman, um, as I was fleeing my family of origin, essentially, and trying to make mm-hmm. this new life for myself as a uh, an intellectual as a classicist. And so it felt like someone had destroyed my refuge, this thing that was so important to me and that I thought essentially that no one would ever care about because it's such a, to most people outside of um, Syria and outside of this very narrow Mm -hmm. band of classicists, uh, something that nobody had ever heard of. Mm. So when the destruction first happened, I felt incredibly alone. Uh, But then I started to see an outpouring of reactions from around the world, um, especially from residents of of Tanmur, from Syrian uh, archaeologists, 
um, from just all sorts of people. And I realized I wasn't alone in my love for the site and mm-hmm. um, that the memory of Palmyra would not be destroyed. And it became um, a chance to try and fight for not just preserving the past, but preserving the past in a way that links together people rather than what my academic career in graduate school, especially had been this, this way of walling myself off from mm-hmm. the world. Mm. And it sounds, yeah, it sounds like um, in that moment you realize that there was, that basically there's work to do. Um, and this is, uh, you know, something that you're trained for and you have the knowledge and personal perspective to um, help with. And so it's almost like, you know, now it's time to work. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I feel like um, in talking to people like in uh, various fields of anthropology, for example, whether they are forensic practitioners, let's say, or they are bioarchaeologists studying uh, skeletons, like I've met people from both camps, like people who find it helpful to be on game mode, so to speak, and they're very <laughs> clinical and then they sort of decompress after their working hours. And then others will, who I've spoken to on the podcast, they use their emotions to sort of feel their work and they're able to redirect all of that feeling uh, into the work that they do. Which one are you? I think in graduate school, I bought into what I think of as the myth of neutrality of classics, that classics is this, and archaeology, classical archaeology is this emotion-free zone. And if you're showing any emotions or any personal reaction to the work, that's that's weak or distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're involved in politics um, or any sort of self-identity work related to the field that's also just sort of distracts you from a neutral point of view that that's the real expertise Mm -hmm. and since graduate school i've decided that this is all a a load of baloney that it's not just that I, I no longer believe that an emotionless approach is better. I also no longer believe that an emotionless approach is possible um, because having done a lot of reflection on why I went into the field of classical archaeology um, versus mm-hmm. other type of archaeology or why I'm so just drawn to ideas of preservation and destruction. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of um, personal history informing mm-hmm. that and it just doesn't make sense to me to ignore that in in my work mm-hmm. yeah i think that makes sense and do we know a lot about the the current state of the matter and the, the debate about how do we get those who destroyed those archaeological sites to be called to account well fortunately you know when i first saw the video the various videos that isis released of destruction of cultural sites i was of course horrified and heartbroken, but then very soon the lawyer and me thought those are going to be real good evidence someday. So I'm really hoping that we will see those videos again playing in court, um, whether that's a domestic Syrian court or some sort of international um, venue. Hopefully people will be brought to justice um, and future combatants, whether insurgent or, or on a national level, will learn that the destruction of cultural property is not 
um, a risk-free approach to war. It's don't do it. Not a good idea. Right. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? So, what does it look like to actually go to court and actually have have a state or a body of people be actually held account to that? What is what would that require, and what would be the possible result of that? Well, so in the recent ICC case, um, the commander, the the man responsible for knocking down these shrines. Um, was convicted and was sentenced to uh, some imprisonment and was also fined, a a big fine, which he has no way of paying. So that was more or less symbolic. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, if a a state is convicted of this type of behavior, in theory, a fine could go towards the reconstruction of the destroyed work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Maybe even more importantly, the the Timbuktu case brought a lot of international attention to these shrines and thus donations and help from various international bodies specializing in reconstruction of uh, and preservation of cultural property. So uh, attention might be the most valuable thing. So deterrence for those tempted to commit this type of crime in the future and attention mm-hmm. to help get um, the destroyed cultural site or cultural objects back to a usable state. Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, in your writing and in your publications and in your communication online, have there been any descendants? Has there been any resistance or people disagreeing with your takes? And I'm curious to know how you dealt with that. I actually, I don't get a lot of pushback uh, and I don't know why uh, for Example, a few years ago, I curated an exhibit of art made at Guantanamo by detainees. Hmm. How um, did you get involved with that? One of those New York City is a small world kind of things. I got a phone call from a lawyer who said, hey, um, my cousin knows you, my cousin, the artist, and um, I have clients at Guantanamo who are making art and I'm interested in getting their art displayed. And I thought, what do you mean that are detainees <laughs> making art at what? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out there have been official art making classes um, mm-hmm. for detainees since shortly after uh, the election of Obama. And uh, a lot of this art had been released to detainees' families or lawyers after being scrutinized. Everything is stamped with, you know, approved by official US forces um, because it's all scrutinized for hidden messages, but it's paintings of, you know, flowers and sunsets, et cetera. So no hidden right. messages. Um, right. And then I put it on display and there's a huge amount of debate and controversy uh, about it, but I didn't get a whole lot of, of hate. Um, actually, my partner at the time was like, oh, come on, you know, you, sure, you're showing me these emails, but they aren't death threats. They're just death wishes. You, you can't even brag you're, you're getting death threats if the emails are saying something like, I hope you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's kind of very grim, but also funny. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but I think you know, people had very strong feelings, but they didn't attack me, which is part in, I think, because I have a lot of privilege, right? As, as a white tenured professor, American. Um, but also I think art and cultural property has, um, these unique qualities of allowing people to 
question their assumptions and make mm-hmm. up their own minds about something. So I try in my public presentations not to be dogmatic, not to say mm-hmm. this is what you should think about something, but here is this interesting thing and here are some, some interesting questions and let's think about it and then see what results we can all come to. Mm-hmm. Was the art made by detainees uh, uh, like sculptures or paintings or? Uh, you can check it out at artfromguantanamo.com. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly paintings uh, and a few sculptures made from scraps of discarded cardboard and old t-shirts and dental floss. Uh, it's not like they have real art materials. It's sort of printer paper and mm-hmm. um, pencil or color pastels. Mm. And, and how did the exhibition go? Like, how did you feel that the reaction was? It raised a real debate. I was astounded how many people came and said, wait, what do you mean Guantanamo is still open? Um, and one of the most intense reactions I got was, um, I, I got a phone message saying, uh, I'm the widow of uh, a 9-11 victim. You need to give me a call. So I very trepidatiously returned the call. And this woman said, hey, hold on a second. I'm conferencing in another widow. And I'm just like, oh my God, they're going to yell at me. And they came on the line and said, thank you for this exhibit. Um, mm-hmm. Because um, they are frustrated that there's never been any legal closure. Um, there haven't been convictions that so many um, in Guantanamo are still being held without charge, much less without trial. Mm-hmm. And they appreciated any reminder that this was still ongoing and still happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that really goes to show like the connection that people can have with uh, art and heritage. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another of my favorite reactions was I got an email from someone who's saying that he was in Fox or he was in the gym on the treadmill and somebody turned on Fox News and it was a segment in which they were Fox and Friends was fulminating about this show. You know, how dare the the work of these criminals, these terrorists, be displayed? No matter that none of them in the show had ever been convicted of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said he saw the paintings that they were. Um, flashing images of it and thought, oh, those are so beautiful. And he was motivated to go check out the show um, mm. because the art had spoken to him directly despite the the context. <laughs> despite the framing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in the world of like art crime, what have been some of the most uh, significant changes that you've seen with the overall field uh, and industry that you work in since you first started out? I think people... I think authorities are starting to take art crime more seriously uh, in realizing the dollar amounts involved and the potential for involvement with greater criminal enterprises. Mm. So it's become increasingly clear that um, antiquities, looting and smuggling goes hand in hand with with arms dealing, with smuggling of drugs, Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention funding of, of various insurgent activities. Um, in recent years, it's been realized that the art market was is one of the last big unregulated ways to transfer large sums of money around, mm-hmm. um, making it a sort of ideal venue for money laundering. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's currently a debate about how do we figure out how to stop that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're doing your work, like, do, do you spend your, uh, how do you spend your day to day? It sounds to me like you're involved in a lot. And I'm just wondering if you have like a routine or if that 
sort of changes throughout the year and each year is different depending on the projects that you're in. Oh man, each day is different depending <laughs> on the projects. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I also have um, two kids, uh, four and five. So there's a lot of, of projects that I could do when they were, you know, still growing mm-hmm. <laughs> versus projects that happen when their school schedule changes or um, if I am in a project that's having a lot of media attention, then that's what I'm doing. For this Guantanamo exhibit, there was a couple of months straight when I was just doing interviews all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then until it was after school and it was time to go home to the kids. Um, and then there are times where I can have the luxury of having a bit more contemplative um, periods of, of thinking yeah, sure. uh, or times when I'm just concentrating on my classes or my students. So mm-hmm. I change it up. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, do your kids know uh, roughly what, what it is that you do? <laughs> well, actually, a few days ago, my four-year-old asked, Mommy, are we all going to die soon? <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, is she, you know, afraid of the coronavirus or something. So I was asking some follow-up questions like, why why are you asking that? And she said, because I want us all to be discovered and displayed in a museum. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, all right, I've done a good job teaching her about mummification. Um, (laughs) Less of a good job teaching her about the ethics of display of human remains. So we might have to have a little, you know, kid-appropriate seminar on that. (laughs) Are they interested in, uh, do you think that one day they could be working in like a art or uh, working at least like in maybe academia, maybe? Well, I have friends whose parents took them to museums uh, all the time when they're young, growing up in New York, who now hate museums and never want to go to one again. So I'm trying to avoid that mainly through strategic bribery with ice cream every time we go to a museum. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and when you were uh, younger, did you ever consider doing anything else before you started entering the world of academia? Like, did you ever consider practicing law? I know that you said that you practiced for a while. Um, did you ever consider working in a museum? Not really. I've been f- fortunate in kind of stumbling into what I want to do. My my educational and career path makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but mm-hmm. basically with not a whole lot of forethought when I was doing oh, it. Cool. So. Yeah. So uh, props to those of us who have no idea what they're doing at any given time because it, it can work out. <laughs> yeah. So what are your plans now? Do you have any projects that you are excited about in 2020? Stuff that you're writing, looking toward 2021? I, um, I don't know because the project that I was working on, uh, I involved a lot of check-ins with various American museums, smaller museums I'm interested in looking at the acquisition habits of smaller American museums mm-hmm. of antiquities, because I think a lot of smaller museums are still accepting donations of unprovenanced antiquities. Mm. So I was going to do a sort of survey and I started it. And now that everybody is sort of in work from home crisis, I feel like they have better things to do than answer my research demands. So I have <laughs> right. to put that on hold for a while. Um, so right now I'm basically concentrating on being a an, a homeschooler of kindergarten math, which is incredibly difficult, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, checking in on my students and um, then we'll see. Okay. Interesting. Uh, and is it easy to identify if something is a faked 
uh, artifact or uh, antiquity, I, I presume it takes a lot of uh, skill and uh, certain, there's a certain science to it. Oh, I could talk forever about <laughs> forgery of antiquities. Um, mm-hmm. It is very fun to um, do this as an amateur sleuth. Uh, so I recommend whenever um, you or your, your listeners go to a museum, take a real hard look at the labels and figure out which things do they actually know where they came from and which things did they just buy and are hoping that mm-hmm. they know where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a surprisingly high number of the latter. Um, and you kind of start to get um, an antenna for suspicion. So something that I like to point out is that stone is old mm-hmm. um, and there's no way to date how recently it was carved. So the stone in the quarry is just as old as the stone in the marble statue in the museum. Mm-hmm. And so if you buy a beautiful marble statue from the art market without knowing exactly where it was excavated, there is no way to scientifically know if it was um, to definitively prove its genuine status. You can, mm. you can look in at the microscopically examine the tool marks to see, all right, if it's carved with a circular saw, mm-hmm. obviously not um, genuine, but there's, there's no, a lot of the scientific tests can really only say no, they can never say yes. Right. Or, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to look at things like breakage patterns. A lot of forgeries are broken to suggest that they're authentic and old, but they only the less attractive bits are broken. And the the nicer things are are still there. Um, forgeries are often funny because um, people have an irresistible impulse to collect erotic um, antiquities. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of the forged antiquities are way more erotic than we found in in actual archaeological sites. Right. So that's always fun. <laughs> right. Okay. The real ones are always like uh, you know this is a sculpture of a tree um, and uh, the fake ones are sculptures of other it's things. More like, you know, you can find a genuine um, from Pompeii fresco of a lovemaking scene with, you know, two people, but the, the fake one will have like 13 mm-hmm. people and, <laughs> you know, five dolphins or <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. even know what, it's like, whoa, okay. Get a, get a hold of yourself, you know. Pierre Lawson, who's like a political scientist who was on the show earlier, the trick that he taught me was that when you look at uh, where things are providence, and if they just generally say Latin America, it means the providence isn't known exactly, and they have no idea where it actually originated. So maybe, likely, is a case of a looting. Yeah, it's either looting or fake. I mean... And even if it was legal for export or import, it was not from a controlled archaeological excavation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even it's amazing. The biggest museums in the world, you go in and the, um, the label will say something like Greece, which to (laughs) me is, it's like, if you ask somebody, Oh, where did you get your purse? And they say, America, you'd be like, you don't what? You don't really know what you're talking about. That's weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I really wanted to ask you also about another example of uh, one of these art cases, uh, which is the Five Points Graffiti art case 
that I read about online where you were testifying as a, an expert witness in the legal procedures. And uh, Five Points was a, a building in Queens with lots of street art on its exterior. And there was a developer who bought the property and then went ahead <laughs> with washing the art off its walls. What happened after that, Aaron? Just to, to back up a little bit. Hmm. So the developer bought this property um, 30 plus years ago and was just sort of holding it until the area gentrified enough, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so he could build fancy condos and, and make his money back. And while he was holding the, the building, artist approached him and said, can we use it? And he said, sure, great. Um, he's an art lover. So he let these artists use the, the building as a graffiti art center. And he made clear from the beginning, this is only until I can demolish the building and, and build condos. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally the time came for him to demolish and then there was, um, maybe a, a breakdown in communications on both sides. Uh, and they, the, both sides felt sort of unappreciated and mm. not respected and were unable to settle. And so they ended up in court. Um, the artist sued under a, an American law, the Visual Artist Rights Act, abbreviated as VARA, um, which gives artists the right to stop or get damages for the deliberate destruction of their works of art uh, if these works are of recognized stature. Mm-hmm. And the law has been used so few times that nobody really knows what recognized stature means. <laughs> so I was testifying as to whether these works had been recognized or not and trying to figure out, well, well what does this mean? And um, this case has been very interestingly treated in the media because people love the site. It's, it was a very, very cool site of art and um, love the idea of artists having rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the law itself is, is not really well understood by anyone, least of all, I think, the people who drafted it. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's been reported on in a very strange way. Uh, so the artists um, just uh, a few weeks ago um, got the final appeals um, upholding the, the judge's decision at trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been reported on as um, the artist's rights were vindicated and they got a lot of damages for the destruction of the art. But mm-hmm. what actually the judge decided was that um, the developer should have given them 90 days notice before he destroyed the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the judge's penalty was imposed for the failure to give this 90 days notice rather than addressing the underlying issue of whether um, the artist's works had recognized that. Basically, like even I am definitely simplifying it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's another, I mean, art law is a fascinating topic and um, is there are very few relevant laws about artists' rights and they don't end up in court that often. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always a crapshoot of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about this case a lot to artists to say, don't, you know, to say, get it on paper, essentially. Don't trust a handshake deal mm-hmm. um, because you think 
you don't need a contract, but if you just have a handshake deal, you still have a contract in court. It's just the contract that the court will make up for you, um, which is probably not what either you or the person you're contracting with um, agreed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be in magical legal language. It just can be an exchange of emails of this is what we're agreeing to. This is what's going to happen if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it's just um, like my partner always teaches me, like it's about uh, not opening your up, not opening yourself up to uh, risk. And so, um, for example, like even uh, when, you know, these days I've had to cancel some flights and cancel some uh, hotel reservations because I can't go traveling anymore. Um, even though I might be talking to someone on the phone, the last thing I say is always, uh, can you please summarize this phone call in an email to me after we hang up? <laughs> and it's just that idea, right? That is a very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it sounds to me like you also have bounced around the the world of art crime in a lot of different uh, instances around the world and around America in different aspects of uh of art crime. And in my work, like as a bioarchaeologist, sometimes when I'm looking at a, a new study, let's say some, some research that's done on, uh, let's say Bronze Age uh, China, and we're looking at skeletons from, from uh, near a river there. And uh, these people in the past were eating um, lots of shellfish, let's say. Um, when I read that study, I think back to, you know, really old, old Neanderthal remains that were discovered by the coast and how they would rely on marine resources. I borrow from like, a lot of different stuff. I think about uh, current anthropological studies on people living today who are fishing in places like Indonesia. And I just sort of combine them in my own head because they all kind of relate to each other. And I'm wondering, do you do the same thing? Like, are you able to borrow and, and take your perspectives from each of these different cases so that you sort of have a really robust understanding of the different ways that these things can go in, in a courtroom and uh, in public discourse? Oh, yeah, you have to. Uh, I get frustrated by so many people who study the law of cultural property and they are just looking at international treatise language uh, and don't think about, well, how does that actually work in reality? Mm-hmm. Does anybody pay attention to that language when they're doing things? Um, but all of you got to mix it all together. The, the personal, the emotional, the practical the the money the the politics national um, like the local and the institutional and the individual yeah, yeah it all works together and it doesn't make sense without one another which is again why this myth of neutrality of that you could just lock yourself in the library and know everything mm-hmm. you need to know um, is so ridiculous <laughs> yeah <laughs> well this has been a, a great chat where can people find you online if people have any questions for you so I'm at art crime prof at Twitter or artcrimeprof.com is my mm-hmm. my website mm-hmm. and I'd be happy to, to answer questions cool. at the end of every episode I like to ask the guests also if they can come up with a hashtag do you have a, a hashtag for this one Ooh, you are running out to the limits of my skills of <laughs> social media uh, how does hashtag art crime and we'll go from okay there. sounds good it's sort of like a secret for every uh, episode so that listeners can use it to indicate that they've heard 
all the way through. Mm, nice. Listeners, thank you so much for hearing this interview. If you want to find more episodes of the show or more information about Aaron's work, I'll be posting links on arcananth.com. You can also find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep the show going. You can find out how you can become a patron as well at patreon.com slash arcananthpod and find out how you can also support this public anthropology and archaeology project. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. Erin, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Um, And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. You too. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye all.